0: Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking, and over the next two podcasts, we are going to be talking firstly about small mammal anesthesia, and secondly about avian anesthesia with Dr. Isidora Sladikovic. Izzy is a diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine, having completed a zoological residency at the University of Georgia. Izzy has lectured widely and has published many peer-reviewed journal articles, particularly in the field of exotic endoscopy, she has also contributed to books, including the third edition of Maida's Reptile and Amphibian Medicine and Surgery. She currently runs the Avian and Exotic Service based at Northside Veterinary Specialist in Sydney. Now, I normally only mention this at the end of the podcast, but because we are talking about anesthesia today, and Izzy has kindly shared with us her standard anesthetic drug doses, I just wanted to remind everyone that this is general information only, and as veterinarians, you will ultimately need to make your own decisions about drug doses based on your patient's condition and situation. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Isadora Sladikovic. So welcome, Izzy.
1: Thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me.
0: That's great. Today we're going to be talking about exotic anesthesia, particularly in small mammals and in our avian species. But before we talk about that, can you tell us a little bit about how you uh, became an exotic specialist and maybe a little bit about the journey that you took?
1: Yeah, sure. I always wanted to be a vet since I was um, very little, and I was always interested in like little creatures, like birds and reptiles and wildlife. So, um, so when I got to vet school, I realized how little training we received in those in those areas. And so, um, and the ownership of exotics was just increasing, and clients were expecting more and more, and expecting higher level of care. So it was really just a natural progression for me as I went through vet school that. I I was going to work with exotics, um, and that's pretty much how I ended up here.
0: Was there any one pivotal decision or any um, big, you know big decision that you made that you think really changed or influenced um, how your career went?
1: I think for me, um, probably like professionally, I think one of the important decisions that I did actually make was was actually doing a rotating internship. Um, I think that really. I did it a few years after graduation, so I was already in general practice for a few years, um, and then I and then I was also in exotics practice, so then I went into the rotating internship, and it really solidified kind of a good clinical foundation for me and exposed me to a lot of different specialties, a lot of complex cases, um, and really kind of opened that path for specialist training. I wasn't really aware of how the process worked until – I got exposed to that environment. so so for me it was a yeah, the rotating internship was was probably a, um, I think a big decision that led me to to become a specialist.
0: No, that's good to hear. I think a lot of the listeners are people well certainly some of them are thinking about doing um, internships and maybe the rotating internship is the one uh, to go for to build that foundation.
1: Yeah, for sure and I think I think a rotating internship, is a great step regardless of what specialty you're planning on going into because I think it really just provides a really, really good foundation. I think it um, is a very valuable 12 months for sure, yeah.
0: Okay, so on to small mammal anesthesia. Maybe we could start at the initial presentation and if you could talk about how you initially assess anesthetic risk in your small mammals, whether that be a rabbit, um, a ferret or chinchilla.
1: Definitely with with small mammals, Um, I think the the ones that are most different, I guess, to dogs and cats are the herbivorous small mammals, so the rabbits, uh, guinea pigs, rodents. Um, And I do try and take a good history with these animals and try and get as much information about their general husbandry and diet. Um, We definitely see a lot of issues still with exotic pets where they are not kept on appropriate diets, don't have the best husbandry, and so they may already be debilitated in some way. And it's not an issue that we really face it with, with dogs and cats, but it is something that we see. And we don't have that much of an issue with that with ferrets, but we do definitely have it with, with our herbivorous animals. Um, and with regards to um, assessing the patient, really just a physical exam, focusing on just those vital parameters, the cardiovascular, respiratory system, the general body condition, the general manner of of the animal. And some problems can be picked up. Some of those are clinical. Unfortunately, some are subclinical because these are prey animals. They do mask signs of illness. Um, And so it is important to be aware of that. So, I mean, the approach is not too different to dogs and cats, but just keeping in mind that these animals may be more sick than they appear basically, and so their anesthetic risk overall may be higher than what we see with dogs and cats.
0: Are there any specific things that, um, that you find that uh, some vets may miss or?
1: I think definitely diet and husbandry doesn't get as probed by by general practice vets as much. And in terms of the actual physical exam, I mean, I've certainly seen a good number of cases where things like heart, heart murmurs may occasionally be missed. These animals do have fast heart rate. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to detect. They also can present shocky, which may not be picked up. Um, again, uh, smaller animals, just more subtle um, overall. The clinical science signs may just be a little bit more subtle. So if you're not working with those animals a lot, I think not, not being as familiar with what their normal behaviour is, how they should normally react, um, I think those things are important and they may potentially kind of slide between the cracks if those animals are just not looked at a little bit more closely.
0: Do you mind if I ask what sort of subtle signs that you see for your shocky patients?
1: So I actually had a rabbit the other day that um, that was shocky, and a few things that were missed were um, this rabbit was usually was actually not a particularly handled rabbit. It wasn't handled regularly by by the owner and wasn't particularly tame, and this rabbit barely reacted to me taking taking it out of the you know, out of the cage, it just didn't really react in a way that I would expect an untamed rabbit to be. So she was very tolerant basically of me handling her. And when I examined her, she you know, she had poor pulses, she was hypothermic. I went to get a blood pressure, I couldn't even get a reading. So she was just classic, kind of that classic textbook case of decompensating shock and those are the parameters that were just not not detected by by the vet just because of that lack i think lack of that familiarity of what that initial kind of distant exam and just that initial handling of the rabbit kind of provided me with that information
0: can i ask quickly if you have some sort of anesthetic grading system that you use for your exotic patients
1: Um, I, I really just use the the standard ASA grading system. So nothing, nothing fancy. I just use that one, keeping in mind that it can sometimes be a little bit of a, of a range, (laughs) um, just because we don't always have all the information. Sometimes we don't have full blood work or full, uh, imaging. Um, but yeah, I just use that system.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, In terms of the discussion that you have with your clients, you said that you do ask them, you know, questions during the initial assessment. Mm -hmm. But are there any important things that you think vets should be talking about, uh, you know, in terms of risk and things like that?
1: What comes to mind with regards to discussions to have with clients, just in general, with anaesthesia, is whenever I what I've noticed is whenever I mention anaesthesia or even sedation for you know something. Non-invasive, like radiographs. Even if I mention sedation, I've noticed that clients almost have like a knee-jerk reaction to that, saying like, "Oh, anesthesia, sedation—that's so dangerous. Isn't it dangerous in exotics?" Um, and and I find that that's often because they've had a bad experience, or maybe they've heard of a friend of theirs that that had a bad experience, um, and so. Often I go through percentage mortality risk with them and because that has been published. It's been published in humans, dogs, cats, rabbits, guinea pigs. So there are published mortality risks. Um, and when I tell them what those mortality risks are and I compare them to dogs and cats, yes, they are higher, but a lot of clients are actually surprised at how low the number is. So, you know, the number is still in single digits in terms of percentages and clients often say to me like oh well I thought the anesthetic risk for a rabbit is like 60 percent so they get surprised you know they get surprised when they hear that it's you know less than less than two percent so i think just having that discussion and, and giving them some numbers um can uh, can just kind of put things into perspective for, for clients a lot and it helps them feel more comfortable and um you know to, to proceed with the, with the sedation or or an anesthetic
0: is the less than two percent is that across all your small mammal species
1: no so there is a study i can't remember the exact source of it
0: that's fine. What we'll do is we'll find the article afterwards and I'll put a link in the website's description so people who are interested, they can have a read afterwards. If we could move on from there. Um, sure. Now, I would say that a lot of vets probably have their general or standard set up for their dogs and cats. What sort of equipment do you think um, vets should have, at least at a minimum, um, to be able to do safe uh, anesthetics in these animals?
1: so for small mammals there really isn't too much of fancy new equipment that is required i would say the most important things well the things that that i have are i have anesthetic the correct anesthetic circuits i think that's really important having the i have the air non rebreathing tee piece for rabbits and then i have the rodent circuit for guinea pigs and small rodents so these circuits are basically designed with the um dead space in mind. And then for rabbits and ferrets, I have just small uncuffed ET tubes. So I have size two, two and a half and three. And then for the small rodents, just small face masks. So really anesthetic circuits, ET tubes and small face masks are the are the main thing that might not be available in, in general practice, but everything else is very similar.
0: That's good to hear. If we can go on to your pre-anesthetic preparations, How If we could start, how long do you fast uh, these animals or do you fast these animals?
1: I don't fast these animals. The herbivores, they they can't vomit and their stomach is never empty. The main thing with herbivorous animals is just making sure that they don't have food present in their oral cavity at the time of sedation or or anesthesia. So what can be done in that case is food can just be removed um, for about... 15 to 30 minutes prior just so that whatever food is already present in their mouth, they can swallow that. Um, I often find that that's not necessary. Often by the time I'm ready to, to go, they haven't really been eating in the last 20 minutes. The only ones that really need fasting is the ferrets um, because they're the only ones that can vomit. Having said that, the fasting time should be pretty short for ferrets. It's usually about three hours. And practically speaking, by the time they're ready to be anesthetized, they are already been fasted. I mean, with the transport from the home to the vet hospital. So by the time you're ready to do that, um, they're already fasted. So I don't tell people to fast.
0: Do you check your um, blood glucoses in your ferrets uh, in that fasting time?
1: Depends a little bit on the case. If it's a sick animal, if it's a sick ferret, then I would check blood glucose. Um, And also, if it's an older animal that is a risk for having insulinoma, I would check. But if it's a young, healthy ferret, then I, I usually don't.
0: Okay. Can I ask how you check that in a conscious ferret?
1: The blood glucose? Yes, it really depends on the demeanor of the of the ferret ferrets can sometimes be very wriggly and difficult to take blood from. I mean, if it's just a drop of blood, then you can just go with a cephalic vein um, just to get a drop. Sometimes cranial vena cava stick, I mean, cranial vena cava stick is where I go when I take full um, full bloods. That does require anesthesia. Uh, the other thing is if that's not feasible, then pretty much at induction, just take a drop of blood pretty much straight away. And then if any glucose supplementation is required, that can be started at that point
0: okay cool what sort of blood tests do you like to run at the start
1: again it really depends on the case in an ideal world it would be great to have full hematology and biochemistry for everything at a minimum i like to have pcv and tpp if the animal is is big enough i do like to have renal and liver parameters done so pcv tpp renal liver blood glucose if I can have those, I would definitely be quite happy. Sometimes that just has to be skipped. It might just not be practical in certain cases.
0: Is that like when you're talking about practicalities, like for example, mm. just the like guinea pigs being very difficult to get blood, is it sort of that sort of reason? or?
1: Yeah, so it might be that sometimes they have to be sedated or anesthetized just for the collection of the blood so it's not a pre-anesthetic blood anymore it's potentially i guess a (laughs) (laughs) pre-surgical blood so that is an issue and same with small rodents like often they do have to be anesthetized um, for collection sometimes it's a matter of blood volume again more for rats and mice
0: does um, stress or management of stress come into the picture when you're in that pre-anesthetic phase
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that with exotics in general, regardless of whether they're having anesthetics or whether they're coming into the hospital at all, I think managing their stress is really important. They are prey animals and they can get stressed from smelling, hearing, or seeing dogs and cats. If a nurse that's handling those animals is absolutely covered in dog fur, I think those things should definitely be kept in mind. I house all my exotic mammals in a separate ward away from dogs and cats, I try and make sure that they are appropriately housed. I think this is this is probably one thing that I've noticed in general practices with hospitalized exotic mammals is something as simple as proper hospitalization, providing rabbits with visual security. You know, something as simple as a towel over the cage or a box in the cage. It's such a simple thing to do and it can make such a big difference.
0: That's a really good point, Izzy. I think that a lot of people that are listening don't have access to uh, specialist exotic wards, but everyone has access to a towel or a cardboard box, which can make a huge difference for these animals. So, yeah, really like that. Now, I did want to talk about some of your anaesthetic protocols. Maybe if we can start with rabbits, because that would probably be the easiest starting point, and then cover some of the other major ones.
1: This is a big one, Uh, so just stop me when I've been talking for two
0: no, that's that's fine. I, like I have all the time, but yeah, I'll I'll keep an eye on it.
1: Okay, um, okay. So I can give you just a few, I guess, example protocols and and some things that I do and some things that I don't do. So rabbits, I would say the two most common protocols that I use are fentanyl ketamine glycopyrrolate combination. So that pretty much provides. That's like a deep sedation, almost induction sort of level and pre-oxygenate and then blindly intubate with an uncuffed tube. So that's a pretty standard rabbit protocol. Another one that's also commonly used, especially in a clinic that doesn't necessarily have fentanyl and glycopyrrolate in stock, midazolam and buprenorphine. For those in North America, when I was um, during my residency, we used hydromorphone a lot. We don't have it here in Australia that I'm aware of. So yeah, mezzalam hydromorphone um, or medazolam buprenorphine is another good premed, um, and then that can be followed by ketamine induction or isofluorine induction if the animal is sufficiently if the rabbit is sufficiently sedated. So those yeah th- those two protocols are probably my most common.
0: Just quickly, can you tell us what drug doses that you uh, use for these just so that people have some idea of what is safe and what is effective? Sure.
1: So, for the rabbit, um, for the glycoketamine fentanyl protocol, so what I do is glycopyrrolate 0.02 mix per gig, subcutaneously. Um, then I do fentanyl at usually 0.015 mgs per kick, and that's combined with ketamine at five mgs per gig. So that can be put in the same syringe. And I give that IM and that ketamine is a low dose of ketamine. So this is not the same dose as that published in a lot of books where it's an actual general anesthetic dose. This is a low dose. It's really there for analgesic purposes. Um, with regards to medazolam, uh, usually for rabbits, 0.5 mgs/kg, um, and buprenorphine 0.03 mgs/kg. Again, combined together, that can be given IM to provide pretty pretty good sedation.
0: With that first protocol, do you? Mm-hmm. Is there any time um, between you giving that glycopyrrolate Glyco, and the uh, combo? Oh,
1: about 15 minutes usually.
0: Okay. And how long do you pre optionate for?
1: So what I do is I usually give the fentanyl ketamine IM and I pretty much place the oxygen by face mask on the rabbit pretty much straight away. As long as the rabbit is tolerated, I don't like to force it. Be mindful, sometimes there is ISO in the circuit, so sometimes the rabbits don't like that, so just check that first. So yeah, I pretty much put it on there straight away because it does. T- it takes about 5 to 10 minutes for them to go down with that, so that's pretty much the amount of time that they are getting pre-oxygenated. And, the preoxygenation can actually can, can actually help quite quite a bit with preparing for that for that intubation process.
0: If they don't go to sleep off that initial, you know, fentanyl ketamine, do mm-hmm. you top up or I don't know, give a little bit of isofluorine? I'm not sure.
1: Um, if they're not allowing intubation, if they're still moving around. Usually I give a little bit of isoflurane. It's usually a low percentage. And that is often enough the other thing before i forget uh, with using this protocol fentanyl because fentanyl is actually a pretty potent respiratory depressant and it can cause apnea in some in some rabbits so whenever i do use fentanyl i have naloxone nearby ready to be injected I think I've only had to use it like once, but it's it's one of those things that especially with blind intubation, they have to be breathing for blind intubation and they have to be breathing just to stay alive. So um, just have naloxone nearby if if you're using that that protocol.
0: Now I, I love the details. What what dose of naloxone do you use? It's good to calculate a like
1: a 0.05 to 0.1 kg dose should be given IV. So either have IV catheter in place or if there is no IV catheter in place at that point, I always make sure that I have an insulin needle nearby and clippers so that I can pretty much access the peripheral ear vein pretty much immediately.
0: Do you think that vets should be placing that catheter in prior to inducing?
1: Uh, It's always ideal. In rabbits, it really depends on, it depends on the state that they're in and what procedure they're going under for. Like if, if they're going under because they're going to have an emergency X-lap or something like that, then for sure, they already have a catheter in place. Probably they've probably already been receiving IV fluids, but Certainly in a lot of cases, if it's a healthy rabbit, if it's going under, say, a spay, that catheter is probably not going to be in place by the time that – because glycopyrrolate is not going to provide any sedation. So really fentanyl ketamine is going to be that first sedation. And um, so that's really going to be the first chance to, to place a catheter. If a catheter is to be placed beforehand and, you know, especially for those that are just, you know, starting and they're not comfortable with not having IV access prior to induction. So I would say either use midazolam buprenorphine protocol and then place IV catheter with midazolam buprenorphine on board because it definitely does provide very good sedation, allows those things to be done. The other thing that I would say, regardless of which protocol you're using for IV catheter placement is use Emla cream. The Emla cream has actually been studied in rabbits for ease for e-tattoos. There are studies out there that shows that it is um, really, really effective at numbing the area. So it'll make things much, much easier. Sorry, we've gone off track on IV catheter placement now.
0: (laughs) No worries. This is really good stuff. Um, So, where were we? We were talking about anesthetic protocols. And so what are some of the things that you do for some of the other species?
1: So guinea pigs, I pretty much use the same thing. Small rodents and ferrets, I use more of the midazolam-buprenorphine protocol. The things that I'll just I'll tell you just to keep it short, and then maybe we can move on to something else. But mm-hmm. in terms of drugs that I don't use, <laughs> things that I don't do, because um, that's probably a shorter a shorter list. So things that I don't do, I don't use alpha-2 agonists. Especially in rabbits, there are studies out there. Um, it's more with the older, with the older alpha two agonists like xylazine, that it can actually cause myocardial necrosis. Uh, and and the reason, one of the reasons for this is that rabbits actually have very limited collateral coronary circulation. So the, the vasoconstriction that occurs with alpha two agonists can actually be damaging to the cardiac muscles. The other thing to mention is that zolotol or tilazole in North America, <laughs> um, I don't know what it's called in, in Europe, but uh, Zolotel telazole is contraindicated in rabbits. It's associated with nephrotoxicity. The other thing that I don't do is I never mask down with isoflurane, a completely conscious animal. So an animal that does not have any sedation or any premedication on board, I think that's really, really stressful and that can cause apnea that can be quite problematic. So those are kind of the things that I don't do. Um, But there's a lot of other drug options out there that I know we're not going to be able to discuss just because of time, but lots of other options out there on Faxan, potentially PropFol, all sorts of things.
0: I do have just a few questions about that. Hopefully (laughs) I I can keep it short. Just Quickly to clarify with the alpha two agonist does that include yes. metatomidine as um, something you wouldn't uh, use
1: yeah I don't I mean I think it certainly is uh, potentially a problem a problem drug in rabbits just because of that circulatory anatomy
0: mm. mm-hmm. yeah in terms of alfaxan though i've I get mixed reviews in terms of <laughs> using alfaxone i have mm-hmm. gone to just personally gone to several different clinics in the uk and some yes. of them love using alfaxone but they use it at a lowish four mix mm-hmm. per kg and then they use it very very uh, slowly when they're inducing um yeah. iv um but then i've had other you know specialists just absolutely do not like it um at all because yeah. they find it unpredictable so yeah. i don't know if you have your own view on that one
1: I think one of the biggest issues with alfaxan is the respiratory depression and the apnea. And for those that have used it in dogs and cats will know that these animals will sometimes just breath hold. Um, And generally in that after intubation, there is a period that they do have to be manually ventilated for a little while until that effect wears off. And the issue that we have in rabbits is the intubation. Um, and I think that's where we run into problems with LfaxN, because mm-hmm. blind intubation requires spontaneous respiration to still be occurring for us to be successful in intubating, and the you know the most reliable way of intubating rabbits by endoscopic visualization is just not available to most practitioners. And so I think that's where we run into problems. For me personally, with regards to alfaxan, I have used it in rabbits. Um, and I still I actually use it in rabbits as a sedative for things like radiographs, ultrasounds, uh, CT scans. And I actually use a low-dose IM. And we, when I use it that way, I don't observe any respiratory depression. And I, I believe that that's maybe used in cats as well in a similar sort of way just to provide that brief period of sedation for you to do something non-invasive because of course it doesn't have any analgesic effects so i find it very useful for that i have used it IV as well. And I have seen that that respiratory depression. And yes, it does need to be given very, very slowly. When it's been given IV, I believe it's over like 60 seconds that it should be given, which I know, I mean, I think that that's the recommendation for dogs and cats, but I think a lot of people just kind <laughs> of like, let's just get this animal to sleep. Um, so it does need to be given very, very slowly. And the and, and the line between and causing respiratory depression and not is pretty fine in, in rabbits. So I think that's where, you know, if someone's had a bad experience, I can see why they are like, nope, not doing it. Um, and, and for those that are using it in that way, you know, they're probably happy with it. I have also used it in combination with ketamine just to offset some of that respiratory depression. So lower dose of, of each drug, so alfaxin and ketamine drawn up and then just giving them, simultaneously IV as an induction it works pretty well
0: okay cool just quickly just to clarify something with when you said that you use your midazolam buprenorphine was that just something that you would normally use just for light sedation for you know non-invasive procedures is and do you use that with anything else or is literally just those two drugs
1: yeah so midazolam um so yeah i would use midazolam for things like ultrasounds Mm potentially radiographs as well. If it's going to be painful, like for example, if it's going to be ultrasound and there's going to be fine needle aspirates, then I will add buprenorphine as well. And I've had some rabbits that, for example, radiographs, medazlam is just like not cutting it. They just don't want to go to sleep with it. Mm -hmm. And in those ones, that's the ones where I add a little bit of that alfaxan IM as well.
0: Okay. And are these ones yeah. that you do end up intubating as well or they
1: Uh no, like- they're just the ones that I end up have doing these brief procedures on sure. but if there is like for example if i if i have a case where i have to sedate an animal to take radiographs like for example i've used medazolam to take radiographs and then it turns out that i need to convert that to a general anesthetic then i will just use that medazolam buprenorphine like i will just carry on with with that protocol to convert that to a to a general anesthetic, so I would not do the fentanyl ketamine protocol. I would just go with this one instead.
0: Okay. And one last question about when you anesthetize your small rodents. Uh, you yes. said that you don't normally just give them the gaseous anesthetics how do you normally inject them is it just IM? like rats like, yes, rat, like for
1: rats for example yeah no see, now you got me um <laughs> so so i just try and restrain it if i can get subcutaneous midazolam buprenorphine i do that i mean some rats are going to obviously be just impossible or they're going to bite you or they're going to just be impossible to restrain and yes that would probably be an exception as to where i might just gas them but I, I don't do it. I, I never do it in a rabbit. I think it's really, really stressful and I don't do it in a guinea pig. But yeah, those small rodents that are just so squirmy and it's just impossible, then yes, that's, that would be an exception.
0: Moving on a little bit, what is your opinion on when to intubate and when you can use V-gels?
1: You're asking the wrong person about this because I don't actually, I haven't actually used V-gels very much at all. I have had V-gels by my side a lot, (laughs) mostly for emergencies. During my residency, V-gels were actually in our emergency cart for rabbits and i have used them in a few situ not anesthetics but just for cprs with with rabbits that have presented in cardiorespiratory arrest basically so i've used them in those situations just because it's not possible to intubate them when they, well it's possible it it's very very difficult to do it so i've used it in those situations i haven't used them much for anesthetics So a colleague of mine in the U.S. actually did a study on this and what she did was she looked into, and I'm waiting for her to publish it because I think it's an important finding, she actually compared ET tubes with V gels in rabbits and then looked at they were research rabbits so they were euthanized in the end and then their larynx and trachea were looked at for histopath. And there was actually no difference in terms of inflammation, edema, Necrosis hemorrhage when V gels versus ET tubes are used. And I think that's really important because I think there's a little bit of a belief that ET tubes can be traumatic to those regions, whereas V Gels are not, but the histopath tells us otherwise that there's actually not a lot of difference between the two. So yeah, so that's that's as much as I can tell you about V Gels. I really I haven't used them routinely. For for anaesthetics, so I don't really have much much more to add. I know that I know that when they're placed, they can't be rotated because obviously the the opening to the to the trachea can be occluded. So I know that there is an issue there, um, but yeah, not not much experience using it myself. I really I really try and, and have an ET tube in place, and it's also for, in terms of ventilation. I think ventilating is much more reliable with an ET tube versus a Vigil.
0: Do you provide, well, I guess it's it depends on the situation, but in your standard mm-hmm. anaesthetic, do you use a ventilator?
1: So I use a ventilator pretty much every time as a standard for every bird and reptile <laughs> anaesthetic. Really, the ventilator can only be used for animals that are intubated. So for rabbits and ferrets, I will attach them to my ventilator if they are critical, if they're likely to have respiratory depression, if they're likely to not breathe. But if I'm doing a a procedure on a animal that's relatively stable, if it's a a routine procedure, if it's a dental, things like that, then I usually don't attach them to the ventilator. And Usually, they—I would say—in a majority of the cases, they will be breathing on their own. And for the period that they are apneic or or hyperventilating, usually in that initial phase, I think manual um, manual ventilation by a nurse is is perfectly fine.
0: Okay, good to know. Can I ask about um, if you could comment a little bit on how patient positioning um, can affect your anaesthetic?
1: I think this is more of a with mammals. This is more of a issue in our herbivores so particularly in rabbits and guinea pigs and one of the one of the things with these guys is that they i mean a rabbit rabbit's tidal volume is significantly smaller than that of a dog or a cat that's of equal size i mean their thorax is just tiny and placing them on their back i think is is a potential problem. So when they are placed on their back, they have that huge gastrointestinal tract that's just pressing on their on their diaphragm and um, compressing those tiny, tiny lungs even more and potentially causing hyperventilation. And, and that has actually been shown that they do have periods of CO2 spiking, ETCO2 spiking, when they are in dorsal
0: recumbency. Do you like to tilt them or is it just fine just to manage the ventilation and things like that
1: it's probably a little bit of both i do try and and if they're going for surgery i do try and just tilt the table a little bit that's probably the best thing it's important not to kind of lift them to the point where their neck is getting flexed i think that's one of the things that can happen is they're just like if if the entire table can be tilted then then i think that can be definitely helpful and then monitoring the co2 and manually ventilating or using a ventilator to make sure that that co2 stays at a normal level
0: Now, I would like to ask you about, just because you've already talked a little bit about that then, was how do you monitor these patients and what sort of equipment uh, do you like using?
1: The most important parameters to monitor in mammals are going to be respiration and ventilation. I think just having a dedicated nurse that's observing these animals' respiration is really important. Monitoring their ventilation with a capnograph, I think that that is probably one of the most useful useful things. And keep in mind that respiration and ventilation, if those things disappear, if the animal is not breathing, cardiac arrest will follow. So I think keeping an eye on respiration and make sure that ventilation is adequate with an ETCO2 is really, really important. That's one thing. The second most important thing to monitor is the temperature. These animals become hypothermic very, very quickly. They have Tiny, tiny bodies with a large surface area. So, the speed with which they lose temperature is much, much higher than that in dogs and cats. So, I think monitoring temperature, breathing, ventilation, those are my most important things.
0: And do you get your nurses just to check, you know, heart rate and things just with the stethoscope, or do you prefer using Doppler or? <laughs>
1: I I do like to be hearing something beeping myself. So pulse ox can certainly be used. And in most animals, you can get a pretty good reading with a Pulse ox. It is always good to hear a true sound, not a machine sound. So I think having a doppler is is really really helpful. It can be placed in guinea pigs, for example. It can be placed just directly over the heart, and of course, you can just it can also be placed over over an artery. So yeah, either either pulse ox or or doppler, just so I can hear the sound as well.
0: Okay. And you know how you said that um, maintaining temperature is important. What do you use to maintain that temperature during the anaesthetic?
1: The most effective thing is a bear hugger. So I try and use bear huggers whenever I can um, in Brief procedures are the ones where I, if I don't have a bear hugger, it's just going to be like super, super quick. A heat mat is fine and also just a hair, a hair dryer. I mean I use a hair dryer during the the recovery period quite a lot because that is actually pretty quick at, at raising their raising their body temperature. And the other thing as well is it's not – it's like the thermal support is great, but it's good to minimize, like you don't want to get to that stage. You try. You want to try and minimize that as much as possible. So body heat can be lost during the clipping period, during the prepping period. So I mean, that, that should be kept in mind, the actual environment. So when I go into the OR, the aircon is off, so I am sweating <laughs> usually. <laughs> I try and not use excessive amounts of alcohol during prep, and it's also a good idea if it's possible to actually have the surgical prep solution warm before it's used. So having one of those warming units and actually placing the chlorhex in there. So just doing those little things just so that you're trying to just minimize. That heat loss as much as possible.
0: Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. It's definitely some of those things I don't do, and I, yeah, it's good to know. Can you talk a little bit about what fluid therapy you like to use?
1: Really depends on the um, on the case. Uh, as a general rule, Hartman's are fine in the majority of the cases. Uh, Plasmalite is a little bit more balanced. It's a little bit more expensive, I believe, in most places, but it is kind of the superior one. Uh, but Hartman's I use in a lot of cases. It's perfectly fine. And if I have these animals on IV fluids, then usually 10 ml per kilo per hour, the standard surgical rate, if they are having a very brief procedure where they're not having iv i do like to just give them a warmed subcutaneous bolus of just a 20 ml per kilo usually just a little bit to to hydrate them and and that's you know subcutaneous fluids should really only be relied on in animals that are normal volemic and normal and you know it shouldn't be relied on in animals that are shocky for sure so i use it in just elective procedures or brief procedures
0: good to hear yeah. now i know that you talked a little bit about your analgesia that you use <laughs> i'm just wondering what sort of pain relief that you do like giving maybe not so much for your minimally evasive procedures like mm-hmm. your radiographs but maybe for your ortho you know orthopedic procedures and when you actually give those analgesic uh, drugs,
1: I have a very low pain threshold, so I, I I use analgesia pretty much. I try and basically do a multimodal approach. I try and block the pain pretty much at every step, if I can. And you know, these animals, you know, the pain can majorly affect their appetite, which can then you know cause gut stasis. And the you know, I think that the implications for these animals not having appropriate analgesia are much much. Higher than (laughs) you know, all animals should receive analgesia, but certainly more things can go wrong, I I think, in that immediate period. So, what I usually do is so I will have an opioid pretty much on board at, at the time of pre med. I will have usually ketamine on board. So, ketamine is an MD, an MDA receptor agonist, so it acts. On those receptors, so it has analgesic properties at those low doses. So I use that. I use local blocks as much as I can. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't get fancy with, with with regards to you know my nerve locators or anything. You know, I try and use local blocks as much as I can, whether that's infiltration or line blocks or splash blocks. Um, so I use bupivacaine quite a lot for that. And the other thing that I do use in rabbits in particular is lignocaine CRI's. Um, there's been a bit of work done. Done on that and I've found it to be quite useful and then at recovery if there are no contraindications I administer meloxicam and if needed I top up their opioids and you know carry on with meloxicam into the post op period in majority of the cases sometimes with an opioid if it's needed
0: okay do you mind telling me your doses for your bupivacaine and your meloxicam
1: bupivacaine for a rabbit Yeah, so for rabbits, I usually go with about two mg per kg, and for, what was the other one you asked me?
0: Uh, For Meloxicam.
1: Meloxicam, Meloxicam for a rabbit. So Meloxicam for rabbits, I use about 0.5 mg per kg if I'm administering it subcutaneously as a single dose, and then I switch to oral after that.
0: And is that at the same dose once a day? or
1: yeah. uh, 0.5 mix per once a day. that can actually go up to twice a day. So rabbits can have healthy rabbits with no renal disease, can have one mix one Mipicig once a day without any problems. I usually go depending on how painful the procedure is 0.5 and by the way, this one per Peke in rabbits is oral only. 0.5 mix per gig, um once or twice a day, just depending on the rabbit.
0: Sure. No, it's good to know. I think that um, a lot of the vets that are only starting to do exotics, you know, hear one mg per key a day yes. and they're like, wow, that's a huge dose.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I, and that's actually one of the things that I find a lot in with referral cases that I see is usually things like meloxicam are massively underdosed just because um, a lot of people are using dog and cat doses, which are significantly lower. Most of our exotics require much, much higher doses of meloxicam for it to have that therapeutic effect.
0: So I just wanted to quickly ask if you had Any other emergency or drugs that you use that you have on hand ready in the case of a respiratory arrest or a cardiac arrest, just so that vets know what they should have on hand?
1: So the two drugs that I have pretty much like next to me are naloxone and adrenaline. The other things that I pretty much always have nearby are just tight fitting face masks, You can actually provide some ventilation with a tight-fitting face mask. So make sure I have a range of face masks, even if I know I'm going to use a particular one. Just have a range. I always have extra ET tubes. I always have smaller ET tubes because they are easier potentially to place in an emergency situation. And the other thing that I have... Always, always is I always have swabs and cotton tips around with me all the time. I always feel like I need to swab throats, get rid of mucus, get rid of some food that was, you know, potentially left in the mouth that's causing problems. So I often, you know, rely on those things just being just being next to me. So those are kind of the the main things. So just very basic stuff.
0: One tip I just wanted to Tell everyone else well, is it it's actually a good idea to work out your doses beforehand and just have them ready. So yes, um, for, for people sure. that, you know, can't do mass quickly under pressure. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. The other thing I was wondering was I am not sure if you, I don't know if you you could clarify is is does atropine not work in rabbits? So about fifty
1: percent of rabbits have circulating atropinases. So basically they have an enzyme that works to basically blast atropine and so in about half the cases atropine is not going to work which is why glycopyrrolate is used instead so so atropine will work in some rabbits but it's going to be a flip of a coin obviously if that's the only thing you have and you have a, a rabbit that's crashing from bradycardia and you don't have glyco by all means use atropine
0: okay thanks for that And on that note, we are going to be finishing up on small mammal anesthesia. Stay tuned for our next podcast where we talk about avian anesthesia. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you like the podcast, please spend a couple of minutes to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot and it will help us get the podcast out there. Also, if you have any feedback or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers who you think would be great on the podcast, please email me at contact at inquisitivevet.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. The Inquisitive Vet podcast is brought to you by Bar Vets Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only, and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives, or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical advice to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material information techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast this disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast thank you for listening and we'll see you later bye